We are thrilled to be joined by CISA Deputy Director Nidin Natarajan. They will be chatting about what's top of mind for CISA, the current threat landscape, and the state of public and private collaboration around cyber. Uh, Mr. Natarajan serves as the Deputy Director for CISA. In this role, he supports the CISA Director in overseeing the Cybersecurity Division, the Infrastructure Security Division, the National Risk Management Center, and the Emergency Communications Division. His operational support responsibilities are to ensure a holistic approach to critical infrastructure protection across physical and cyber risk activities. So you're just a little bit busy. <laughs> Prior to joining CISA in February 2021, Mr. Natarajan served as an executive at a consulting firm and served in federal, state, and local government roles. Prior, he started his career 13 years as a first responder in New York, including service as a flight paramedic. So I'll invite you both up on stage. Thank you so much for joining us. We oh. really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's so great. flight paramedic, yeah. that's a different whole set of problems, huh? Very different set of problems. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I, I think it, it probably, you know, in, early in my career, I, was, I started as an incident responder. So, you know, generally people refer that to, to that as being sort of smoke jumping. I think you were actually smoke jumping, though. <laughs> so he's got... We tried not to jump out. There you go. <laughs> we, we, we... Excellent. Well, it was a bad day when you have to leave mid-flight. So it sounds like you guys have been really busy. We'd love to kind of get a sense for you what's top of mind in the organization and kind of how you're seeing things develop. Sure. So I, I think the big thing is how do we raise the bar, right? How do we look at the opportunities we have to raise a bar to, of resilience? Both, obviously, we're looking at, at cyber as well as physical resilience and critical infrastructure. But, but how do we make sure that we're paying attention to the greatest risks? How do we make sure that we are taking efforts forward to raise that bar collectively with our partners in the private sector and state, local, tribal, territorial governments and with our international partners? Because um, it's not something we can do alone. And so I think we've really tried to hone in on how do we maximize effort? How do we make sure that the actions we take or that we ask others to take mm -hmm. truly do raise the bar as we make, you know, we have limited opportunities for investment. So how do we make sure that what we're investing is being utilized effectively and changing the landscape? Because I think there's a lot, it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole. It's very easy to do things that don't move you forward. <laughs> and so how do we make sure that what we're doing truly is moving folks forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to maybe get a grip on how you guys think about uh, prioritization, because uh, it seems like that would be the key to sort of everything that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think people want us to create a list, right? Everyone wants a list. What's the, what's the top 10 list, the top 20 list, or what, what's the infrastructure that's, that's at most risk? And I, I tell people, like, I'd love to have a magic bubble. When I think about, like, what scientific, there's two things scientifically I'd love to create. One is the teleportation of coffee. I just put out my hand and it's like a cup of coffee shows up. And you could ask and someone will bring you one. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> uh, teleportation of coffee and magic bubbles, right? Because if we, if we could look at critical infrastructure as a physical site-based issue, we could have somebody out there create a magic bubble and protect. All right? But I think even as your presentation was saying earlier, we, we've gone away from that. In yeah. cyber, we've gone away from that even in the physical space based on cascading consequence analysis or impacts and cascading impacts and those types of things, which... We can't create a single magic bubble um, uh, to protect this. So as we look at prioritization, you know, it comes down to how do we really understand what those systemic risks are? How are we able to help tell the story of cascading impact analysis so mm -hmm. that people can, can make the decisions on where to invest and, and what risk to do uh, to invest in? How do we look at risk from a three-legged stool? So I think we spend a lot of time talking about risk identification. <laughs> we spend a lot of time talking about risk mitigation. We forget that third leg, which to me is every risk we identify and we don't mitigate, we're accepting. Yeah. 
right? And we always accept some risk. I mean, I drove I walked up on stage, I didn't fall, right? I took a risk by coming up here. I'll take a risk by leaving and not falling. Take a car home. I'll Probably the riskiest thing yeah. you do all day. <laughs> but how do we make sure we're eyes wide open in, in what we're accepting? And so how do we understand that landscape of risk? How do we use that to drive our prioritization? And then how do we do this in a way, frankly, for us as we look at this, across 16 criminal sector sectors yeah. that are in various levels of maturity? All right. And we were talking earlier about, about groups like the financial sector that yeah. have had a quantifiable return on investment of investing in cybersecurity. So they have. We have other sectors that have not invested yeah. as long or, or as much. So how, do, how do, are we able to address risk in a way, knowing people are in different places? How do we address risk in a way that it speaks to large multinational corporations mm -hmm. as well as small businesses? And as we look at the supply chain risks, a lot of those yeah. things are not, a lot of that risk doesn't reside in large multinational corporations. It, it results in the small business that's creating that one yeah. little piece, that one widget that, that is, is critical. So... Prioritization, I think, at the end of the day for us is a challenge because we're looking across that entire vertical and horizontal. But I think what we want to try and do is really understand what that systemic risk is. And then most importantly for us is what is our role? What is the, the, the best use of the government? What's the best use of, of tax dollars as we look at driving down some of that risk and helping, I think, really helping others drive down yeah. that risk? And so that's what we really want to focus on is how are we able to, to understand what our role should be, where we can fit into that broader landscape, and then what are those tangible actions that we could take uh, to help drive that risk reduction? Absolutely, yeah. No, and I'd be really curious because I think the, the key part of risk uh, or key part of managing risk is just the visibility. And I'd love to know because this is, I mean, it's a relatively new organization in terms of the, the federal government. Like, how you, where, what kind of data do you use to sort of ingest and take in and to, to with, with what you can tell me, obviously, some of it, <laughs> some of it you'd have to kill me, but um, the stuff that you can talk about. Like, I just, at a general level, like, how do you observe the risks and, and, and take it in? So I think a lot of there's this understanding of what data exists, right, mm -hmm. and the quality of data mm -hmm. um, that's out there. I think we, we are in a data-rich environment, but I think in, it, to me, as we look at kind of, the, you know, what was the Rumsfeld Square, right, the known unknowns, unknown knowns, I think we, we have a lot of unknown knowns. We have things we know we don't even know we know. Yeah. So how do we make sure we're investing the time in that box to really understand those data that we have, how best do we maximize it? You know, I think CISA sits at this great spot where we're not the intelligence community, yeah. we're not law enforcement, we're not the regulator, mm -hmm. but we work with all, all those partners. So how do we understand what data exists and then how do we leverage that in a way that allows us to drive our mission. So it, it's, there's a lot out there. Mm -hmm. I think we need to really better understand what, how to use it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you guys are drinking from a fire hose there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think it'd be interesting maybe if we could talk about the threats. And, 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 and it might be good to, I think we, we as an industry, or at least the media and as an industry, we, we, we tend to always talk about the same threats. Um, would love to maybe hear about some things that are top of mind for you that we don't hear about every day. So I think, to me, and I'll, I'll, is the threat looks at complacency, yeah. right? I think that, you know, my biggest thing as we look at this is that we know who the threat actors are, right? We know, we know we're, we're not talking about, I mean, to me, the 80s were last year, or the 80s were like in the last 10 years. <laughs> the 80s were really only 15 years ago. But the perception of what was a hacker and things back in the 80s is not obviously what we're facing today, mm -hmm. right? So we have individual actors that are also looking, that we need to worry about, but we're talking about nation states. Yeah. We're talking about you know, well-resourced, well-invested uh, type of entity. So I think there's been a lot of talk out there about who the adversary is and what does the adversary look like and how do we, how do we engage. What I truly worry about is getting people to understand that the potential for them to truly be a victim okay. and how do, how do they perceive the threat to be theirs. 
And I think that things like Colonial Pipeline and others have helped that, where people have thought in the past, I can't be a victim, right? No one's going to come after me. I'm a small business, or I'm a small rural, uh, rural jurisdiction, or I'm at school, and yeah. what, ha- what have you. They're not worried about me. They're worried about the New York cities of the world. They're worried about the large multinational corporations. I think what we're seeing is that people are, are able to see that the threat is real to them. Mm-hmm. And I think we're starting to see that expand more. So I'm not sure the, the while the actor landscape has changed, we spent a lot of time talking about that. And folks are pretty, I think, more savvy about that mm-hmm. thanks to the media and, and things yeah. like that. But I think that there's, I think what we have seen the change or we need to see more changes is people realizing that the threat is theirs yeah. and not just somebody else's. Well, I thought it was interesting, and, and maybe to opine on one specific instance, the uh, the recent uh, theft, like the cryptocurrency thefts that have been happening that are predominantly being linked to North Korea, um, and then the, the recent action by the Treasury Department to, to blacklist a couple of the folks that were doing some of the laundering. Like, I think, I think it's, it, it's, first of all, it's a shame it didn't get more coverage, because, like, you want James Bond in real life. There, there you go, right? Like, it's, it's just sort of amazing. I, and I think, I think on the federal government side, when I talk to folks who are more dealing with this daily, they're just sort of like, yeah, n- n- no joke. Like, it's been this way for 15 years, right? So I'm just kind of curious how you think about maybe, how you think about maybe breaking down some of that either numbness or that sort of complacency on the side of, of the more general public. I, I think it's education. It's yeah. getting the consumer to ask questions, mm-hmm. right? So if you're going to go to a uh, go to a bank, you know, is the bank using you mentioned earlier about multi-factor authentication? It, it is MFA May. I'll make my shameless plug. <laughs> MFA May. You know th- that looking for those types of capabilities. You know, what does that do to your personal information and mm-hmm. to your resources and the value there? I think getting people to understand even things like IoT and that we're introducing a lot more vulnerabilities in, into the world. I mean, I think that you know we have refrigerators connected to the internet. <laughs> I don't know why. If somebody has one, I'm not against it. I don't know what it does differently than my refrigerator. <laughs> um, Let me show you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Please but, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> But all of these things are bringing in new vulnerability, right? Yeah. I think getting people to understand that, you know, I, I jokingly told somebody the other day, I would love to go back to my old Motorola StarTAC yeah. right, kind of days. But we've brought a lot of capability and technology into our mobile devices. But with that, we've brought risk. <laughs> and I don't think we spend enough time talking about the risk because we're talking about the pixel size and the ability to play games, right? I think we also need to educate the next generation, right? Arguably, I'm a lost. Uh, you know, I believe what I believe, you, you know, and, and how do we change my mind? How do we teach that next generation? And I look at, at my kids who are coming out of high school, and people are like, oh, they're so cyber savvy. And I'd say <laughs> they're not. I would offer that they're tech savvy, <laughs> right? They've used iPads from the time they were two months old, mm-hmm. but they still take the password to the back of the iPad or to, or, or to the back of their keyboard. Or right? it's one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, or it's yeah, one, two, three, my four, daughter's five, right? case. Again, so, please don't tell me. <laughs> And her login would be... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that, you know, we've, we've created a generation of people who we've equated tech savvy to cyber savvy, so we need to make them cyber savvy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way that we, we indoctrinate them, you know, from Mark. If we can get every five-year-old this month to say MFA May, we're winning. <laughs> but I think we need to build it into that next generation yeah. um, for them to truly build it into their daily lives, both personally mm-hmm. and professionally. The, so the MFA may, that's an interesting, a little, a little aside maybe, because I know that there's been a lot of noise about Google and Microsoft wanting to go passwordless. And in, in general, I think passwordless from, we'll see what passwordless means to them. But when I, when I hear passwordless, I usually, it usually makes me think that it's WebAuthn, it's some standard, you have a hardware key, like it's generally a more enjoyable experience, but also more secure. Curious about maybe, are you guys leaning in on some of that, like driving those standards or... So we want to have the conversation about what 
what technology capabilities are kind of the stronger products out there? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we work closely with, obviously you mentioned NIST earlier and yeah. our colleagues in this, when we look at standards development, I think right now where we are is as we try to find the footing to some of that as a newer agency is, is how do we, how do we help educate on what exists? And then how do we help guide where things should go? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so we've, we've talked a lot about things like zero trust and those other types of issues and people immediately come back and go, what about this product? What about yeah. this solution? What about that? And that, I think at the end of the day, from a system perspective, you know, we try to be product agnostic, mm -hmm. right? I mean, in the sense that we're looking for the capability and increasing security and resilience from raising that bar perspective. Mm -hmm. And how do we do that in collaboration with the public and the private sector? Right? I mean, yeah. we don't not, I know this is a big shock to everyone. Not every great answer comes out of the beltway, right? <laughs> so how do we make sure that we're, you know, truly understanding what's out there? How do we under, better understand what's happening on the horizon, mm -hmm. right? I mean, how do we do more of that tech scouting and really understanding what industry is coming up with on Absolutely. the horizon? That's really, again, kind of moving the bar forward, not the shiny object. But the things are truly going to raise uh, raise standards across the board. Absolutely. So I suggest you build an embassy in the Bay Area, <laughs> the People's Democratic Republic of California. Yeah. So so that's yeah. That's I think that's I think that's really important. I think it's important as well. I think as a security practitioner, like my first instinct is always to default to suggesting products, and so I think like it's a very it's a nice and very sort of more mature and rounded approach to to default more to guidance and standards. Like, I think that's actually, I think suggesting products is probably how we got into this mess, but okay. taking some blame on that one. You know, I think every, every security person has a, a security news story they hate and, and sort of like, or a threat that they hate, right? Like the Russian hacker um, is just one I never want to hear again. I mean, obviously they're prolific, but like you just hear enough of it. I'm curious from your perspective, are there like threats that we're just way too obsessed about and probably distracts us from the real risk? No, sorry, threads, we, we spend a lot of time looking at the short term. Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time, I mean, we, it's nature, right? It's by default. We're focusing on what's in the here and now, what's in front of us. Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of time focusing on that reaction. I don't know if we're spending enough time looking at the longer term. Mm -hmm. If we're really, truly looking at what resilience looks like in five years, 10 years, mm -hmm. 15 years. And I think it's because it's hard, yeah. right? We don't know where technology is going to be in five or 10 years. I mean, we have some ideas, but I think it's going to be, it's, it's harder to gauge kind of what, what that, what that, you know, glide slope looks like, right? And mm -hmm. where we're going to go. So we, we focus on, well, what's immediately facing us. And so I think we need to spend more time on that longer term resilience because it's going to take time to build into it. When I look at even things like enterprise solutions, we look in government, we look at, yep. you know, a lot of those types of things. I mean, those are multi-year efforts. And often, you know, at least in the government acquisition process, by the time we've set our scope and we've done the acquisition, it's already outdated. Right? And, and now product. we just start the cycle again <laughs> that hopefully in 20 years, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll move away from this. You know, are there still Blackberries in the federal government? I would not be surprised. I, I, I was somewhere about six years ago, seven years ago, I still saw Token Ring. Wow. Now, I saw Token Ring when I was at IBM yeah. in, in, in the 90s, but I've not seen Token Ring or OS2 since then, but it's still there somehow. And so I think that there's, you know, we need to figure out, I think, from, from, from a government perspective of, of how do we change that cycle, how do we understand what's out there, and how do yeah. we get us where we need to be. I think that's, but I think, you know, it's, I would say that private industry has the same problem with, with that sort of crafty legacy stuff, especially in enterprise software. Like, I think it's, it's one of those things where enterprise software just has this really long tail that you just don't fully appreciate. I mean, because we want to always invest in the new stuff and the new and new. And, but like, you know, when I worked at City a couple of years ago, there was a mainframe that they were still using that was older than I was, right? And that's like city. They have all the money in the world, but you know, it's doing this one thing and it's done this one thing since the like the the the, the late seventies and it's gonna keep doing it. So yeah, I think it's funny. I think that's actually a real challenge is how do you how do you drive those meaningful standards in such a 
diverse environment with things that are, you know, older than most of your workforce. Would, would love to maybe turn now to talk about Russia and Ukraine. I, I think that's the, the elephant in the room that we, we haven't touched. Um, or maybe the, the, yeah, the elephant in the room. You know, without getting too specific on it, you know, I think one of the things that's been very interesting as a passive observer is that we didn't have the same chaos we had in 2014, which was the NotPetya, the, all these like things that were designed and developed. I mean, from what I read, I don't know if this is the case, but to disrupt Ukraine kind of got out and disrupted global commerce. And it just seems that in this iteration, there's been a lot less like sort of collateral damage. Um, would love to maybe whatever thoughts you have on sort of like, is that because we've just up-leveled since 2014 and we're doing a lot? Is it the work of the government driving sort of like standards and letting people know because we got the Shields Up announcement that I think, you know, a lot of the boards that I'm on and the people that I work with took very seriously? Um, would love to just maybe get your take on some of that. Yeah, so, so I think that there's changed on multiple sides, right? I think mm -hmm. there was definitely changes. We look at the adversary and, and, and some of the approaches there. I think there's definitely changes from the from the government side of work that we've done yeah. over the last uh, six years or so, seven years, to really increase the bar. I think a lot of that's due to collaboration with the, with industry and a lot of those types of things that have helped mm -hmm. industry become more resilient. I think people believe in cybersecurity more than they did yeah. six, seven years ago. And I, so I think that all those kind of things together have got us to a good place. I mean, I tell people, you know, I, I was in the public health space for a while. And, and so we, we've been planning pandemics for a long time, right? <laughs> this is not new to us. Now we were planning pandemics, I remember in seven, 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, when H1N1, when what we thought was a pandemic hit, and little did we know. And, you know, what we actually said back then was that we could not go to a complete remote work or telework posture because the IT systems couldn't handle it. Yeah. Well, fast forward 12 years, and they couldn't handle it. And they couldn't, <laughs> and they couldn't handle it then. But fast forward 12 years, we pulled it off. Yeah. Right now, we pulled that off not just because, you know, because of transition to cloud. I mean, a lot of things that led, led us to where, where we are today. So I think as we look at NotPetya versus now, I think part of it is really both changes on the adversary side, changes on our side, changes on the partnership and the relationship. I think that Shields Up is a great example where we're able to lean forward and share a lot more information with industry partners, both at the classified level and the unclassified level. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we get information out there? How do we get people to trust the information we yeah. put out there? You know, our goal at the end of the day is not to get every classified document out to everybody or get everybody cleared with security clearance. Mm -hmm. We'll never get that information out there in a timely manner. It's how do we get the information out there in a way that people can actually utilize it. And over the years, I've developed kind of a mantra on information sharing, right? So to me, it's how do we get the right information to the right people in a timely manner that results in more informed decision-making. So even if the decision is the same, at least it's better informed. And so I think as we look at this event and, and what we saw, we had the mechanisms to get information out there. We had people believing the quality of the information that was coming out there. By leaning forward, even when we didn't have information, I think there's value in saying we don't have a lot of yeah. information. And I think we saw some really unique things. I think we saw a lot of information that, that you know, we were able to get from the classified space to the podium pretty quickly, yeah. you know, in, in record time in some, in some cases and really able to use that to drive people's decision-making on, on what actions they should take. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that it's been, I, I think it's been a strong response. I think it's been effective response, but it's all about the collaboration, the partnership, because it's not just us putting information out there yeah. if it can't be utilized. And until we can get the feedback and really build those systems in, in a way that, that allows us to work together, we're not changing that national landscape as we're looking at critical infrastructure. Yeah. I got to say, I mean, having, previously run an open and closed source intelligence operation for Citigroup, you know, 10, 12 years ago, 
it was pulling teeth, even if you had a skiff and all the clearances required to get any data out of anyone, um, just to see the change in the pivot towards, you know, you don't, I mean, obviously you're not releasing everything you know, right? You don't have the pictures of the people doing it at their keyboards, but just getting the tools and tactics has just yep. been super beneficial. So like, I think the, the change in the frequency of release of very sensitive information has done a lot. Well, it wouldn't change your calculus as, as looking yeah. at the information either, right? So even if we, if we had a picture of yeah, I don't care that Dimitri's doing, doing it. Does, it doesn't matter who's doing it or how they're doing yeah. it, right? I mean, they, what, what, how do we help get the information of the hands of the cyber defenders out there to make the decisions they need to make, to take the actions they need to take to protect their organization? That's what we need to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's interesting because I think specifically with Russia and Ukraine, like this is, I mean, it's kind of a blended threat actor, right? You do have the nation state, but you also have the criminal and mm -hmm. there's, there's obviously some cross-staffing happening with some of these teams. <clears throat> would, would love to maybe get your take on sort of like the, the, there have been a, there's been a lot of work on ransomware. The administration's gotten very serious about it. And it just so happens that it's mostly centered in, in, in the areas that are now <laughs> fighting with each other. Kind of curious kind of your guys' approach to dealing with ransomware and, and sort of how you're kind of maybe defanging some of that. Because it does seem like it's maybe gotten better. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we also I'll make my plug for stopransomware.gov. Yeah. And we tried to put everything <laughs> together into a central website to get the information out there. But I think a lot of it comes out of education, right? It's mm -hmm. educating that we're not going to, you're not going to get a million dollars by email, yeah. right? You're going to get a big paper check. Someone's going to come to your door and ring the bell. And you get, if Ed Whitman was alive. I think, <laughs> but I, I think, it's, again, it comes down to education. I think it gets, comes down to um, letting people understand who the potential victims and vulnerabilities are. And we, we, had, we had an incident with a, a small school district uh, that was a victim of ransomware. <laughs> the computers, and they basically uh, they, you know, they called the number. And they said, we don't have any money. We're just this, this tiny school district. You don't understand. They said, no, we know how much money you have. We have your bank account statements. We know how much you have. And we know how much you can pay. And what we're asking you is pretty commensurate to how much you got in the bank. So we're, you know, we're not taking everything. We're leaving a little bit of something. But, you know, really, this is what we want. Yeah, you can buy some pencils. Yeah. And, uh, and they said, well, yeah, well, you want Bitcoin. I don't, I don't know how to do that. We've got a help desk. Oh, yeah. We've got a help desk in 14 different languages that can help yeah. you and, and, and help you get, you know, get, get Bitcoin. So how, you know, how can we help you? So, so I think you know, on ransomware, really by doing that push to let people understand the vulnerabilities, the risks, mm -hmm. who the targets could be, and, and the actions to take, and really the again, kind of the monetary impact. I think yeah. with with ransomware attacks and with other types of things we're seeing, people are individual users. I, I think about my parents, right? Like they're starting to see things of like I you know, can't get this product because okay. there was a supply chain interruption, or I can't, or the prices of X or Y went up. I think people are starting to pay attention. I think people are starting to not click on everything, yeah. right? But I think I do worry about things like pandemics and those types of things mm -hmm. where, you know, we have an increased op tempo, the potential to, you know, I have 300 emails in my inbox, I just need to get through them, you know, who, who falls victim to those types of things. And so how do we need to keep the pressure on? We need to keep the messaging going. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, get the younger generation to realize this as well. Because, you know, I, I, I made the mistake of looking through my high schooler's inbox <laughs> and I don't know if they read their emails or what they, but I don't know what they, there's some emails there's just hundreds and hundreds of emails saying, yeah, I don't even know where they're from or how they got them. But how do we educate that next generation to, to be in a better place? Yeah, I think that's key, right? I, I mean, if you, look at the, if you look at the taxonomy of ransomware attacks, like, it's very rare. I mean, recently you've seen more sophistication, but on the whole, like, they guess a password for, like, a perimeter device, right? Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite, quite interesting. Maybe we could turn now in kind of the remaining couple minutes we have you know, it'd be interesting to hear about how you guys work. Like, you're all about partnerships and collaboration. Mm -hmm. It would be really interesting to hear about how you work with private sector sector companies and partners and how sure. folks can engage with you. 
So I think, uh, you know, obviously the, the big thing we have that we launched last year was the JCDC, the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, where we really brought in some of those key partners from the MSPs to really have some of those discussions and, and to be able to sit side by side, right? And, and not just have councils and groups that meet, which, you know, that construct is great. Yeah. And we have obviously sector councils of the private sector that meet. And, Usually really you know, nice lunches, right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're good lunch that the private sector needs yeah. not, so, and the, the government uh, doesn't. So I think we have those those forms and those capabilities, but the JCDC really brings it in-house right? mm -hmm. and allows us to kind of sit side by side and, and to learn from one another. Um, to me, partnerships is, is the cr crucial link, right? We can't do this without the partnerships. This is not a government solution, a private sexual solution, or a state, local, tribal, territorial, right? I mean, we it's even within government, it's not just the federal government because the state is different from a local, which is different from a tribe, which is different from a territory. Mm -hmm. So how do we bring all those kind of perspectives and challenges in, into that solution set? How do we bring different angles of solutioning into this, right? I mean, a lot of people in the federal service who've only been in federal service have a particular lens, right? <laughs> There's people, even when I look back, right, I've, I've been in healthcare, I've been in environment stuff, I've been in that security space and, and mm -hmm. the system space. All of those have different ways of thinking. <laughs> All of those have different ways to tap, to engage with their partners or to reach, uh, reach different stakeholders. So bringing all those folks together, I think, for the JCDC is extremely helpful. And then also looking at things like our, our you know, Cybersecurity Advisory Committee, the Cyber yeah. Review Board, a lot of these other things where we can bring in that private sector perspective. We've also looked at how we hire, yeah. right? How do we make sure that our workforce is diverse? And we have people in our organization who come from the private sector and the public sector, who come from the intelligence community and DOD and other federal agencies that can bring all these different thoughts and ideas uh, to the table uh, to have that discussion. So to me, at the end of the day, the partnerships really are the foundation of mm -hmm. what we do, and they're the foundation of how we succeed going forward, yeah. and it's what we need to invest our time in. That's great. Yeah, it seems far more actionable. I mean, I remember some of the original private-public pu par partnerships, you know, starting when Iran was doing the DDoS attacks on the banks, and um, we had to, you know, work with DHS and with the FBI pretty closely on that, and at the time, the briefings were just a lot of information we couldn't really act on. Yeah. <laughs> it was sort of like, okay, that's his mom. That's where he lives. This is great. <laughs> How do we protect ourselves? So I think, I think the moment, I think that the, the fact that you guys have taken this down to brass tacks is great. Would love to maybe, maybe think if there's anything else out there that's doing it well, the private-public partnerships and some other stuff we can look to for leadership. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we're trying to work with a lot of the kind of self-organized groups, right? We, we know that there's things like the ISACs, the ISACs, yeah. a lot of those types of groups are out there. Working with a lot of the industry associations, working with you know, chambers and a lot of those types of groups that are also now looking at cybersecurity and how do we just participate in those efforts, right? We don't have to lead everything. How do we participate and kind of bring some of those connections together? How do we change the way in which we do the partnerships and we have that engagement? I've, you know, I've, I've been here a little over a year, but I've been a partner assistant for 15 years, right? I, I, was, I was a non-federal partner. And so I remember being called into a room once and they said, they said we're going to share intelligence with you. I said, this is great. They said, what do you want to know? I just had this whiteboard. It's like, I, I don't know. I'm a, I want to know who's going to attack me when and how. We don't have that, okay? I want to know the, the top five things I need to do to protect my network. Well, we don't have that. Yeah. And so we literally spent a day doing that. And then they literally ended the day that this was a raving success. <laughs> oh, this was a waste of my time. Right? <laughs> so, so how do we look at those opportunities in, to engage with those partners in their venues? How do we change the way in which we engage? Mm -hmm. How do we look at what we do from the eyes of our partners? And, and I, I have an opportunity every two weeks, I talk to every new employee orientation. I said, everything we do, we need to look at this from the eyes of our partners. Yeah. We need to make sure that we are providing value to them, that this is bi-directional, 
not one directional, and that if we are making an ask of industry, if we're making an ask of the private sector, mm-hmm. that we're part of that plan in receiving that information is some type of return. Yeah. And if, if there's no return, we shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, that's great. I'd love maybe because we're, we're sort of nearing the end of time. It might be nice to end on a note where it'd be great to understand um, how we can, on the private sector part, better engage with, with the government and sort of like help make things better because it's sort of one of these team sports things where like we, we all kind of like lose together if we don't win, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is, is engaging with us, mm-hmm. right? I, th- I think it, it's we have great relationships with, with, the, with the partners that we know. Mm-hmm. What my biggest concern is there's a lot of partners we don't know. Yeah. And, and we don't know where they are or how to get there. We are not, this is a growing organization. So, we, you know, we have a field force throughout the nation, you know, 500 or so people. We need to continue to grow that. But even 500 people is a drop in the bucket, right? So, so we need to know how to engage or who to engage with. And that's where I think industry, because there is a lot more opportunity for industry, industry engagement to, mm-hmm. to get us connected with those right partners that can help us raise that bar of resilience. So I think that there's, that's really the, the one big thing. And then keep us honest, keep yeah. us honest and educate us. You know, we're really trying to lean forward in a lot of our engagements, because I think that in the past, there's been a lot of fear about how we engage with industry. What can we do? What, can't, yep. what can we say? What can't we say? You know, we've built a team at CISA now that really is forward-leading, where we, we're not afraid of that engagement. We, yes, there are, there are lines. You right? respond on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we have lines, but, like, as long, we have a lot of latitude within those lines. Mm-hmm. And so we're really trying to, trying to stay within those guardrails. We don't want to crash through and go off the cliff, but, like, mm-hmm. as long as we stay within those guardrails, we're fine. So I think the biggest thing for us is tell us what we don't know. Yeah. And we, I know there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot of those unknown knowns. But helping educate us on what those are, helping us uh, stay accountable for what we're doing or not doing, mm-hmm. uh, really is, I think, going to help us move forward and make those significant jumps we need to make to get us to the future. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Really appreciate it. Thank really you. appreciating you take the time and the work you guys are doing is awesome. I think uh, just the difference between 2014 and now is, uh, is a testament <laughs> to your success. Nobody ever writes the story that the building didn't burn down. So <laughs> here is your building didn't burn down moment. <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> thank, thank you, you very much. much. Yeah, Thanks, Patrick. Awesome.